Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. As you're opening to Psalm 110, we're going to take a look at one or two verses there. If you're familiar with Psalm 10, you understand, or Psalm 110, you understand that it's short. Uh, But we're going to take a look at a couple of verses there. As you're doing that, we are deeply honored to be here. Uh, We love you guys in a way that's hard to communicate. Um, Your pastors are family to us, John and Rainy Dawn, and all my guys are here. John Z and Jeremiah uh, and Josiah, Um, we love them deeply. We celebrate what God is doing. And we are really honored to be in an ongoing way, a part of um, the extreme and beautiful work that God is doing here um, with this church family. Um, So thank you for continuing to give room for me and for our family. And obviously that's my wife and kids and then Stephen and his family. And I understand between us there's a whole lot of us, but then there's more. Um, that are on our team and on our family, and uh, we're just, we're really privileged to be a part of what the Lord is doing here. Um, And so thank you for always welcoming us and creating space for us to be able to contribute um, into the beautiful work that God is doing. Um, Amen? Um, We sang words just a few moments ago um, that are very challenging. We sang, Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful. Uh, But I would ask you, is he beautiful to you? And don't be too quick to respond. Don't be too quick to respond because uh, obviously I'm going to continue on. But I think that we have to understand the motivation that brings us to the point where we answer that question. And we're so ready to hand off an answer because we know it's what we're supposed to say. Right? Well, I'm supposed to say yes. It would be absurd. It would be blasphemous. It would be completely wrong. It would be erroneous to think that you would ask the question, is Jesus beautiful to me? And that I would consider an answer to be anything other than yes. But I would ask you, is he beautiful to you? And in asking you, is he beautiful to you, I would ask you why? What is beautiful about him? What is it that immediately brings you to the point where you would consider that Jesus is beautiful? And this isn't some sort of trick question, right? It's not some little game that we're playing. But when you look in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse number two, Isaiah actually prophesies something out in the section of the suffering servant, We know that it begins in chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12. And he's talking about this suffering servant that God himself will send. He will raise him up in a generation. And in the description, or in how he defines this suffering servant, this son of man, this reed, this branch, this shoot that will grow up, in chapter 53, verse number 2, He says words that are incredibly difficult to try and wrap my mind around in an attempt to answer the question, is Jesus beautiful? For Isaiah says this, there was no stately form about him 
that we should desire him. There was nothing attractive about his appearance that we should long for him. There was nothing attractive about his appearance that we should desire him. There was nothing magnetic about his appearance that we should be pulled or drawn or create this longing to want to be with him, much less to put him into the category of those that we would consider to be beautiful. And I think that we have to understand that in the context of the question, that there is so much about our cultural conditioning that is constantly bombarding our hearts and seeking to disciple our lives. The culture is trying to disciple you whether you know it or not. And the culture wants to disciple you in an attempt to train you to tell you what things you should desire what things you should qualify or categorize as beautiful, what things should be pursuit-worthy, what things should be recognized as worthy or honorable or esteemed. But Isaiah says there was nothing about him. There was nothing about him in human appearance that was beautiful. There was nothing about him that was attractive. Isaiah is telling us he was incredibly ordinary he was incredibly ordinary man if we hear this and it's offensive to our idea of who we want Jesus to be at least we're on the right road because Jesus is not beautiful because he's the most sexy man that ever lived Jesus is not beautiful because he's on a magazine cover Right? Jesus is not beautiful because he's on the cover of men's health. Because he's on the cover of Vogue. He's not beautiful because our culture has determined that according to its qualifications or standards that he fits the mold and therefore we should be pulled towards him because it has said that he is beautiful. As a matter of fact, his form, his way, his DNA, his substance, even his own appearance is counter and offensive towards all of the conditioning of our upbringing and discipling according to what the culture says is right. Because he's not trying to fit into the mold of what the culture says is beautiful. Jesus is not beautiful because he has the right hair type because his teeth are perfect, because he has the eye color that you want him to have. He's not beautiful because he has the right size chest and a six pack. We're building something, we're going somewhere. He's not beautiful because the world says so, because the world has a system. First John two tells us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is attached to the love of the world and its system will fade. This age will pass and there will be one that will rise glorious and exalted, enthroned and more beautiful than every other, but not because he fits the status quo or even because he fits into the categories that our culture has told us are pursuit worthy.
Is he beautiful to you? And if so, why? I think we have to get into what our appetites have been trained to appreciate. Paul mentions a category of folks in Philippians chapter 3. He starts in verse 18 and continues into verse 19. And he says, I even tell you now weeping. He's so broken over the consideration of a crowd of people in the category that they fit into. He says, I'm sharing this with you now weeping. Broken over the idea that this is actually possible. He says that there are a people whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is their shame. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Who set their minds on earthly things. Who set their minds on earthly things. Their God is their appetite. I think if we are not careful, then the attempt in discipleship that the culture is constantly bombarding us with begins to affect what our appetites actually appreciate. And then we look at him. And because the way we've been trained tells us that what we're seeing, we don't appreciate. Because it's not what we want it to be. It's not what we thought it could be. There's these creatures in Ezekiel 1, these creatures in Isaiah 6, these creatures in Revelation 4. It says they've been gathered around the throne from the time that they were created. And they've looked at him since the moment they were formed. And they are completely overwhelmed by what they see. It says that they have one response to what it is that they've been privileged to behold. Holy, holy, holy. We've never seen anything like you. You're so beautiful. You're so other than. You're so amazing in glory, in majesty. From the moment they've laid eyes on him, their response has been the exact same. For hundreds and thousands of what we would know to be years in the place of eternity, they've had the same response from the moment that they've been privileged to actually behold him. From the moment that their eyes, and it says, we know from the description, they're covered in eyes. They're covered in eyes. And being covered in eyes, all of what they are seeing is completely overwhelming them to the point where their response seems simple. But it's the only thing that they know how to say. It's the only response that seems right according to what it is that's being revealed. They're so moved by what it is that's being revealed to them that they don't know any other thing to do or say. Holy You are holy. You are amazing. You are beautiful. From the moment they laid eyes on him. Which tells me that they haven't gotten bored with what it is that they're seeing. But have you? 
how quickly we're ready to move on to the next thing. How quickly we're ready to progress through. How quickly, because our culture's conditioned us, that our attention span and our appetite, our desire for certain things, it doesn't last very long. Things get old quick. We get bored fast. We see the same thing all of the time and we begin to lack appreciation. Although inherently we've been built with certain appetites that long to be satisfied. Your appetite is not something that you can avoid. It's something that you've actually been built with. You've been formed with it. But the understanding that our appetite has a level of appreciation. All of the ways that we determine beauty. All of the ways that we categorize what's beautiful to us, what's worthy to us, comes through a level of appreciation when an appetite has been satisfied. For some of us, we understand because the word beauty in its definition means the way that we satisfy our natural senses. It's the way that we satisfy what is attached to this natural man. It's what we eat, it's what we taste, it's what we touch, it's what we listen to, it's what we hear, right? For some of us, you can appreciate a great meal. It's beautiful because it satisfies the palate. For some of us, it's a sound. It's instruments, it's the collection, the harmonies, it's the beauty and symphony that we, we appreciate a certain sound. For some of us, it's an aroma. For some of us, it's what we lay our eyes on. It's nature, it's the beach, it's the mountains, it's the grandeur of creation, right? There's an attraction even with our spouse or with others. No, not anyone other than your spouse I'm talking about. Let's just make that clear. And you're like, man, Mike told me I could be, no, 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 no. No, no, that is not what Mike said at all. But our appetites have a demand. And they long to be satisfied. But when somebody has an eating disorder, you don't tell them to stop eating altogether. <laughs> I was in the fitness industry for a long time. It doesn't look like it, but I was. And in the fitness industry, you would run into people that their issue was not that they weren't exerting themselves in the right activities, putting in the right amount of time with different movements or with different environments that they needed to be in in order to accomplish certain goals. Their issue was that they had an eating disorder. Their issue was that they could not retrain their appetites in a way that would become subject to the goals that they were communicating. But when somebody has an eating disorder, you don't tell them, hey, listen, man, never eat again in your life because you can't get it together. No, what you tell them is you need to retrain that appetite. You need to retrain that appetite because the appetite in and of itself is not wrong. It's the way that you're satisfying that appetite that's wrong. And our culture is constantly conditioning us to satisfy our appetites in certain ways. And if we are not careful, then we will lose interest in the beauty of this man. If we are not careful, then we will lose the satisfaction in the place of our appetites. Because what we are actually longing for is no longer being discipled by what we are beholding. Our discipling should come through our beholding. 
Because as we have access to see him in what it is that we are privileged to see, it brings a radical transformation into the things that we desire, into the appetites and the way that they are satisfied. My appetite cannot be satisfied the right way until my appetites have been subjected to the right one. And as long as my appetites are subjected to the discipling of the culture, then I will continue to pursue things that are earthly, pursue things that are worldly, go after things thinking that they satisfy me, though they're temporal, though they're vain, though they're hollow, though they're incomplete, though they satisfy naturally now, but they're not connected to an ultimate objective or even then. And these creatures that have seen him from the very beginning have not gotten tired of what it is that they're seeing. But have you? Is your appetite still moved by him? Do we desire him because of what's actually being revealed to us? Or because of the other things that we long for him to do for us? Do we find him beautiful because he pays bills and multiplies food? Do we find him beautiful because of the perks and the benefits? Because of the supposed compensation package? Do we find him beautiful because of what he does or do we find him beautiful because of what he is? Right? None of us that are married, you understand. There's none of us that are married that one day want to find out that our spouse is with us out of duty and obligation. Because they're not actually interested in us, but they're more satisfied by the perks and the benefits than what it is that we may bring to the table. Well, I don't actually find you attractive, but your paycheck is. I don't actually love you, but I love the style of life that you provide. I don't actually have a real interest in you, but it's all of the accommodations that you can create. Man, I'm telling you, the Father is after a people in our day that will love his son. Hear that? It sounds so simple. It sounds so foundational, so fundamental, so elementary, so basic that we so quickly skip over what it is that I'm actually saying. Do we actually love Jesus because of Jesus? Or are we just afraid to go to hell? Do we love Jesus because of Jesus? Or do we just not want to be criticized by the culture that we're not fulfilling all of our Christian obligations? Well, I show up to meetings because it's what a Christian's supposed to do. Well, I give in offerings because, bro, you'd be like a sinner if you didn't tithe. Well, I pray before my meals because, you know, it's what believers are supposed to do. And we have all these duties, all these obligations that many times are formed through the discipling of our culture rather than through an intimate place of beholding where my life is continually being radically wrecked and transformed simply because of what I've been privileged to be able to see. Because he is beautiful. But he's not beautiful because he has blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes. He's not beautiful because he has straight hair, curly hair, a perm or a comb over. Or braids. 
He's not beautiful because he's 6'3", 225 pounds. He's beautiful because God has become a man. And he's beautiful because God has wrapped mystery and majesty in what we consider to be ordinary. And when we lose an appreciation for ordinary, we've lost sight of mystery and majesty. Because most of the ordinary moments of our lives are training us according to what our appetite is actually satisfied by. (laughs) Most of the ordinary, mundane, routine, rhythmic moments of our day over the course of our week and month are actually testing the place of our appetites and the satisfactions thereof. When I lose interest in the things that seem to be ordinary, it's because I've lost sight of the one that is mystery and majesty. Because he's not beautiful because he's goosebumps and tingles whenever I see him. He's not beautiful because he's some emotional high. He's not one of the rides at an amusement park. He's not a pay-to-play attraction. He's beautiful because God has chosen to become one of the creatures that he formed. God has limited himself and put himself into the human story in a human vehicle. He has become one of us. And therefore, he's the most beautiful among us. Because God has done the unfathomable. He has entered in, not just to the story in a way where we are awed and wowed because he chose certain advantages but because he entered into the story in a way where unless we were able to perceive beauty according to his majesty, then we would overlook ordinary and lack the right appreciation because our appetites are being trained by the world around us. Because I'm telling you, the burning is in the beholding. If your heart is not on fire, it's because you're actually not looking at the right thing. Because these creatures... These seraphim covered in eyes and wings are on fire in the presence of God. Why? Because anything that sees him catches fire. The burning is in the beholding. It's not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can fleshly conjure up whenever you think it's a benefit for you. But when you see him, as they see him, they erupt. These seraphim are burning ones because everything that gets close to him and everything that sets eyes on him catches fire. These seraphim are burning ones covered in wings and eyes and faces. They behold him and in beholding him, they never grow weary of looking at him. Man, I pray that God would break boredom off of your life. That you would stop being bored I understand being bored with activities and exercises and hoops and all of these routine things. But if you're doing those things without seeing him, then you're very easily going to be stifled into boredom. Because again, it's the training of the appetite. And man, may God do something in our midst to reconfigure our appetites and the way they are satisfied. Because this is what Psalm 110 says. In the day of your power, your people will give of themselves freely. Let me tell you what a real demonstration of power would be. A real demonstration of power would be when we finally get delivered from self-love. 
A real demonstration of power would be when we finally get delivered from the love of the world. When we finally break off the bondage and the tyranny of the culture's effort to disciple us. Man, I'm telling you, we're looking to athletes and movie stars and music industry folks. And my God, if one more famous person says the name of Jesus and everybody within the Christian landscape starts bugging out and losing their mind as if Jesus needs somebody that the world considers to be faithful in order for him to be relevant, I am going to lose it. I don't care. And this is just to show how radically off our appetites are. As if to think that heaven is screaming the name of a movie star. That heaven is screaming the name of your famous favorite athlete. They're not. Newsflash. They're not. They're not screaming the name of The Rock, LeBron James, any political figure. They're not even screaming Kanye or Bieber. You're like, oh, don't talk about Bieber, bro. (laughs) I don't have Bieber fever. I have Jesus fever. But the point that I'm trying to make is how easily enamored we become because our appetites are off. And it should be an indication of where we are actually at where we are looking to things and people that the world says is sexy. And we have been trained to appreciate what the world appreciates rather than what heaven appreciates. And heaven appreciates a man. But it's just not any man that the world esteems. It's just not a man that fits into the 10 most sexy men on the earth. Man, I'm telling you, all the qualifications are off. I understand that the world has its standard. Man, and we idolize people that are able according to ability, whether it be acting or sports or fame and all of this other nonsense, and we're looking at them in an attempt for them to influence what we should do with our lives. Man, if I can just see what this movie star is posting about. Man, if I can just see what this athlete's going to do. Well, man, let me see who did they vote for. Well, man, did they get the shot or not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it gets super quiet because that's probably where some of us are. Where we're looking more to the world and what the world appreciates and all of its own standards and all of the things that they have qualified and deemed to be ready to influence the rest of us. This is who you should listen to. This is who you should idolize. This is what you should do with your life. This is the things that you should pursue because they said so. And Paul says, I am so broken over the consideration that certain people would allow the things of this world to govern what their appetites are satisfied by. And John says it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that are all attached to the love of the world. But David declares in the day of your power, Lord, Your people will give of themselves freely. We need power to deliver from self-love. Well, Mike, I, I, I want power to deliver people from devils. Okay. We need power to deliver our own hearts from the devil of self love. 
We need power to deliver our own hearts from the devil that is the love of the world so that we're no longer considering things that are immediate and the, all of the appetites and the way that the world says that they should be satisfied. You don't have to look very far in an attempt to understand that the world around us is trying to train an entire generation to do whatever it is that is going to please the appetite that they have. Whatever it is that is going to satisfy you, no matter how dark, no matter how twisted, no matter how corrupt, no matter how bankrupt, no matter how shameful, no matter how sinful, whatever it is that is going to satisfy you, you do you, live your truth. Don't let anybody come against the way that you identify or want to live your life because you should be able to satisfy the appetite that you have, whatever way it is that you've determined is right to you. Paul says, man, I'm sharing these things with you in tears at the consideration that there's a category of people whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. He says, whose mind is on earthly things. But David says that there's a day of power when God's people will begin to give of themselves freely. And I'm telling you, the day that you actually see him for yourself, the day that you really behold him, the day that he actually satisfies you by revealing himself to you, I'm telling you, all the stuff and all the, all the extras and all the additives, they're, they're cool, right? But Jesus uses every opportunity and leverages it towards what he's ultimately after, right? In John chapter 6, it says he multiplies food. Thousands of people gather around. But he's not leveraging this moment to build his brand. He's not leveraging this moment to all of a sudden seize the opportunity because of something that people appreciate has now grabbed their attention. They're there because he multiplied food. They don't actually have a real interest in him, what he's doing, or where it's even going. They're there because they are, like the rest, satisfied in their appetite by something that they've determined to be a miracle. They appreciate what it is that he's doing, and they don't actually have an anchored interest in who it is that he is. And they gather around, and he uses the opportunity rather than to build his brand and leverage it towards maximizing the moment... He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says many of them determine that they're no longer going to walk with him. The Bible says that in the last days, men are going to be lovers of themselves. And that there's going to be a mass falling away. But simultaneously, there's going to be a people that have actually seen him. There's going to be a people that have been joyfully conquered by him. There's going to be a people that are actually madly in love with Jesus and that love that they have for Jesus has brought them to the place where they've fallen out of love with the world because it is possible regardless of how many excuses we create or exemptions we create. Paul says it's no longer I 
that live, but now it's Christ because the world has been crucified to me and I to it. I no longer find my bearings or the satisfying of my appetites in what the world has to offer because now everything has become about Christ. I have actually seen Christ and in seeing Jesus, my appetites have been reconfigured. I don't want the things that I used to want. I don't have a taste for the things that I used to long for. I'm not attracted to what I used to consider to be attractive. These things were a part of my old life, an old nature, an old me. I have actually seen him and in seeing him, I have been transformed by him and in being transformed by him, my appetites have now been reconfigured. I am something different because for a time all I ever saw was the world and so my life was governed by the way the world discipled me. I was trained. I was conditioned. I was raised by a certain system or standard or pursuit but now I've seen something else and in seeing something else I have become empowered to be something else. And he says, I don't want the same things that I used to want. I don't have the same appetites. Man, and I think that if some of us were going to be actually honest, there are appetites in our life that we realize we do not have control over. And I'm not only talking about food. I use that as a reference. But there are appetites from within our own life, ways that we are satisfied. There are things that we long for. And because we long for them from time to time, we go looking for them. Because of the way that our appetite has been subjected to certain things that satisfy. And if we're honest, there are appetites that we realize. I actually don't have the control over this appetite the way that I would like to present myself as having control over this appetite but I'm actually subjected to it. I don't have control over it. It has control over me. And my life is this perpetual cycle of ups and downs and ins and outs, shame and then feeling great and then feeling convicted and feeling guilty and then feeling good again. And my whole life is conditioned around this appetite that I don't actually have control over. Because there are certain things that are beautiful to me. And because they're beautiful, they satisfy me in a way. And whether I like it or not, I realize that I don't actually have the power to curb this appetite or transform it. I don't have power to control this the way that I would like to. Once again, the burning is in the beholding. You have to actually see something. You have to actually see something for yourself. You can't piggyback another person's revelation. You can't piggyback and reap the benefits because you're connected to somebody that really knows Jesus. Because I'm associated, I'm friends on Facebook with a guy who's a powerful man of God. You can't piggyback a YouTube preacher or your favorite podcast person you actually have to see something in him and in seeing something in him. And this is not some exclusive group where like it's for the elite 
It's for the five-fold minister. It's for the church staff. This is not some exclusive category. This is for anybody and everybody who bears the Spirit. This is for anybody and everybody who has a hunger that's been transformed. We've been born again. We've given our life to Jesus. And now in giving my life to Jesus, I didn't one day have an initial encounter. I have to live by encounter. Because in any moment that I fall out of beholding, because in beholding we are becoming, and that's the issue. And dependent upon where our focus is, we begin to become whatever it is that we behold. And some of us look more like Fox News. Or CNN or what a Newsmax, whatever your thing is. But from the moment they've seen him, they said, you are worthy of all of my attention, all of my appetites, because they've been satisfied by you. But have we? And the Lord has to do something in our appetites to where we want what he wants. This is what David is communicating. There's going to come a day where God's people give themselves freely to what it is that God is doing. Where they go all in with Jesus and his agenda in their moment of history. Where they are completely given over because they are a people that have been completely satisfied by him. Where nothing else does it. Nothing else is attractive anymore. There's no way of buying me out of giving my life to Jesus or aligning my life with the will of God. There's no way for you to compromise me or derail me. There's no way for you to sever my life from being aligned with what it is that God is doing in my moment that I've been given to steward. But like David, he was a man that fulfilled the will of God in his moment of history. David is communicating a period, a time, where people are going to give of themselves freely. We will only give all of our lives to the thing that we have been most satisfied by. Compliance is not the same thing as surrender. You may comply, meaning people may get you to do what they want you to do or what you know you should do. Right? That's compliance. I'll do what I know I have to. But compliance is not the same thing as surrender. Compliance can be motivated by incentives. It can be motivated by fear. It can be motivated by punishment. Right? First John tells us the love of God, the perfect love. There is a perfect love and that perfect love casts out all fear because fear is worried about punishment. Do you do what you know you're supposed to? Because you don't want to be punished? Man, I'm telling you, there's no life to live. You do what you know you're supposed to. Because, man, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to miss heaven and I don't want to end up in hell. Man, I'm telling you, the fear of hell is not a good enough motivator. Man, the fear of punishment is not a good enough motivator. You may get me to comply, but it's like, man, go, go clean your room because you don't want to get a spanking. 
He's like, well, I don't really want to get a spanking. Like, that doesn't sound great, so I guess I'm going to clean the room. Man, I'm telling you, you may get people to comply out of incentivizing them in a variety of ways, but you will never get them to go all in in a wholehearted way by way of surrender. I will not give you my life. You may get me to do what I know I'm supposed to do, but I will never give you the entirety of my life. But David is prophesying that there is coming an hour where God's power is going to be demonstrated in that it is going to produce a people that love Jesus and are willing to give him everything. In the day of your power, your people will give of themselves freely. Not because I'm incentivized with preaching opportunities. Not because pastor is going to give me the microphone to pray in the next Wednesday gathering. Not because my name is going to be associated with all of the big time tithers in the church. In the day of your power, your people are going to give of themselves wholeheartedly all in. There's going to be more than a mere association. There's going to be a radical alignment where we have seen something in Jesus that has completely broken all of the other deceptive influences in our hearts that would long to get us to spend our lives doing other things. But this power that is at work on the inside of me is going to do something to me by way of reconfiguring all of my appetite to where I now not only see him, but I see him and now I want what it is that I know he wants. And I am giving the rest of my life into his mission, his agenda, whatever it is that he is doing right now in the moment that I've been given to steward as I'm alive. But it's because I've found him to be more beautiful than any other. Man, I'm telling you, only a people that consider Jesus to be more beautiful than any other can stand against the consequences and the persecution of our devotion to him that is here and that is coming. If you have not found him to be more beautiful than every other, and if you do not love him above every other, Paul communicates a time where because men are lovers of themselves, their hearts are going to grow cold and calloused. And because their appetite is more driven towards themselves than it is to what they've been able to behold in God, it says that their hearts will become cold and calloused. We will lose our interest in him and what he seems to be doing when it no longer benefits me the way that my appetite has been trained to be satisfied. And there will be a mass falling Away, meaning there will be a people that outrightly say, I am no longer interested in you or what it is that you are doing. But the way that our hearts are preserved from such a situation is by looking at him. You can tell a lot about a person at whatever point it is that they're ready to move on. You can tell a lot about where somebody's at by when it is that they've grown weary, they're tired, they're ready to move on. Oh man, pastor, I'm telling you, worship was 35 minutes the other day and my God, like, I just, man, like, it's a long time. 
Like, man, if they'd have sang that chorus one more time, I just don't know what I would have done with myself. Like, man, I had my pocketbook in hand. I was already out the door in my heart. And then, thank God, they stopped. I was praying. I'm telling you, our interests and the way that our self-interests are satisfied, you can tell a lot about where somebody's actually at at the point where they're ready to move on. Man, he is everything. He is the main attraction. He is the order of service. He is the focal point. He is, as a real person, not as an idea, not as some concept that I salt and pepper on my own desires so that I can at least say I'm doing them in a godly way. He is. David says, my soul waits for God alone. Do you need anything other than him to be satisfied? Is what David is saying. I wait for God and for God alone. And I'm telling you, you may not consider this to be a big deal, but I promise you it affects every area of your life. And if there's not actual power to, reach, to reconfigure and to transform my appetite, I don't actually stand a shot. Because I know who I would be and where I would be without the transformative work of the Spirit actually happening on the inside of me. I know the things that I used to go looking for. I know the things that used to satisfy me. I know the man that I used to be. I know the hole that I dug for myself. I know the darkness that I used to live in. I know the sin-saturated life that I used to be satisfied with. I know what it is to long to do my own thing and to satisfy my appetites my own way. But I'm not only associating it with a previous way of life. Because that's not all that Paul communicates. It's not only the old eye. But it's the retraining of the appetites that are attached to this new eye. Where now we just love the world in a way with a Jesus t-shirt on. Where now we love the world. We love the things of the world. We applaud everything that it applauds. But we do it while we post scripture verses on my Facebook timeline. We're not worldly and religious. We're supposed to be born again and transformed. We're supposed to be a new creature, a brand new person, a new version of what I used to be and not just the polished up idea of what I didn't like about the old me. And it takes actual work to transform the appetite. And this is what I'm longing to see God do this morning. I'm longing to see him get in your guts and to start shifting and reconfiguring. I'm longing to see him break into the things that satisfy you. I'm longing to see him break into these lustful cravings, these desires, these longings that we have that at times we even excuse and create different exemptions for ourselves because, well, you know, I'm not as bad as the next guy. And I mean, you know, it's not really that big of a problem. I'm longing to see him actually get in our guts and transform us from deep on the inside to where the appreciation for those things gets lost, to where the taste that we've had for maybe days, weeks, months, years, decades, generations, 
generationally for certain things gets lost. It gets conquered. It gets evicted. It gets overridden by a love that is so real and so wonderful. Because God's solution to many of our woes is to reveal his son once again to us. Here's my son. Look at him. There's coming a day when he'll say that to the whole world and even to the powers that be. Here is my son. Look at him. And look at him until all of that other stuff breaks off your life. Look at him until the pull and the tug for all of those other desires get quenched. Look at him until that thirst you know you have on the inside that longs for a drink from another well. Look at him until he actually does it. Look at him until there's power to produce the outcome that he desires. Look at him. Man, we can't just sing the song in a four-minute period and think that because we said the right thing, that it's actually happened on the inside. Has it? Is he more worthy than every other? Have you determined that he is more beautiful than every other? Because I'm telling you, whether or not you say he is, he is. And him being is not actually determined by what it is that you have to say. Because he already realizes what he is. And it's why he's so secure just to continue revealing himself. Because I understand that the best thing that could happen to you is for you to see me. Because everything that's associated with the world system, everything that's associated with the tyranny of the discipleship efforts of the culture, all of that stuff in you seeing me, I empower you to actually become different than something that that creates. And like these creatures, man, I'm praying that something happens to you this morning. And that by the Spirit, man, God breaks you into a place of beholding where you can sit and actually see him. And in seeing him, your boredom with him will be broken off. And I'm, I'm telling you, whether you would admit it or not, when it's just that clearly stated, many of us are living lives where we are just bored. We are no longer fascinated. We are no longer thrilled by the thought of our devotional life and everything that God has made accessible to me by the Spirit. I bump into people all over the world that are just gritting their teeth. They're just trying as hard as they can. They're just doing the things that they know that people have told them they're supposed to be doing. But there's no joy, there's no beauty, there's no fascination, there's no childlike peaking of our interest. We're not actually satisfied if they're honest, and at times they are. They're incredibly bored, they're tired, they're weary, they're run out, they are dry. They feel distant. They know their heart has grown calloused because they're just in the rigid religiosity and the circus and the system of those things. And in their honesty, they say, man, I don't even know when the last time I've seen him. 
I don't know when the last time that he's actually drawn near. And what I was seeing affected what was happening in my heart. And what was happening in my heart began to come out of my face. Meaning a dry eye is always an indication of a dry heart. But when's the last time that you've seen him and been overwhelmed by him? When's the last time that you haven't just been like, man, I'm ready for the next thing? From the moment they've seen him, they've said the same thing about him. They haven't got tired. They haven't needed a new song. They haven't got tired of singing the same song. Man, if this team sang one song, the whole worship service for two or three gatherings in a row, there would be hell to pay. There would be an uprising of critics there would be an uprising of chaos and because we understand that that's true that's why it's so funny they've sang the same song since they've seen him and i've heard it said best because in every revolution they catch a new revelation in consistently seeing him they see in greater depth and dimension who he actually is by the way that he reveals himself to them. Do you understand? Forever and ever, we will be wowed by how amazing he is. And for some of us, we can't look at him for five minutes without getting bored and tired. But it's because our appetites have been trained. I heard a pastor say recently he went to the movies. He's a friend of mine. His name doesn't even really matter. He went to the movies. And he said, you know what, bro? What was wild was, is we went in and we sat down. Bro, we grabbed our drinks and our popcorn because, I mean, at least in Florida, I don't know here, but there the movies are open again. We grabbed our drinks and our popcorn and we sat down. And, bro, we were ready. Like, we were hyped, bro. Like, we had been waiting to see this movie. Like, man, it came out. Like, we really dig, you know, the whole series and all this kinds of stuff. And he said, but you know what never happened? And I was like, what is this dude even talking about? He's like, nobody came out before the movie and, like, stood on the platform in front of the screen and apologized for how long the movie was going to be. Nobody was like, hey, like, like, listen, I just want to let everybody know so that you can kind of ready yourself. Like, like the movie's going to be two hours and 37 minutes. Like, I understand that it's a little long. I understand people got stuff to do. Like, I get it. Your life is busy. He's like, bro, nobody ever came out and, like, made an excuse as to why us looking at something for as long as we were about to was supposed to be okay. He's like, nobody came out and tried to convince us that it was going to be worth it. He's like, we would have booed him off the stage. We would have said, bro, get out of the way. Like, we all understand what we've gotten ourselves into. I know how long the movie is. I came because I'm attracted to the show. My interest is satisfied by the appetite that I have for what it is that I've come to behold. I understand the dynamics. I know what it is that's going on here. You don't have to come out and make it okay for me. I came ready to be a part of what I got myself into. He said, nobody did that. But we would have booed him off the stage if he would have tried. 
I'm telling you, Jesus is worth more than your 60-minute Sunday. Jesus is worth more than your two-hour Sunday. Jesus is worth more than the little five minutes of boredom every morning. He's worth more than our little quiet time. Like, Jesus, there's coming a moment where how amazing he actually is is going to ravish all of creation. And in that moment, it will be too late as we cross over to change what it is that we think about him. Stand up with me for a moment. You see, what I did not do is come to apologize. What I did not do is come to try and make it okay and convince you. He knows he's worth it. He knows he's worth it. And I believe that we're living in the season of Psalm 110, where there's gonna be a people that erupt throughout the nations of the earth that are completely possessed by the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And they've forsaken every other lover. They have allowed God to inspect their appetites. And they are a people that not only want him, but they want what he wants. And in the day of God's power, they have given themselves to Jesus as king and his agenda in this hour of history. And they've allowed that to radically affect and to influence every single thing about their life. Every single thing that God has entrusted them with. Every single thing that God has given them the opportunity to steward. All of their life's pursuit is now seen through the frame of the beauty and the worth of Jesus and every single thing about me has been given over to this one that I have determined is actually worth it all thanks again for listening to the podcast today we pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him if you would like more information about burning ones you can subscribe to our youtube channel Follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.